The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Asian stocks sink as inflation fears pick up, coming off a roller coaster session on Wall Street. The Nasdaq ends a wild day on the flat line, but the Dow falls almost 500 points for its worst day since February. I have no doubt, none whatsoever, that we are in a raging mania in all assets. I also have no doubt um, that I don't have a clue when that's going to end. St. Louis Fed President James Bullard adds his name to the list of central bankers predicting higher inflation, telling CNBC monetary policy should not change while we're still in the, quote, pandemic tunnel. When the time comes, that's something we could look at, but but uh, I think it's too early to talk uh, taper here. Dues form at the pumps as American gasoline supplies tighten ahead of a decision today. Uh, on when the Colonial Pipeline will resume full operations in the wake of last week's cyber attack. And Israeli forces and Palestinian militants trade fire in the worst violence the region has seen since 2014, as the UN warns of all-out war. Nissan shares trade deep in the red as the carmaker warns of a third year of losses amid huge risks posed by the global chip shortage. Good morning, everyone. Uh, a busy day on the corporate earnings front. Um, we kick off this morning with Commerce Bank numbers just crossing the tape. Uh, this is a, a bank in Germany that has already warned that its way back to profitability is aggressive cost cutting and the shelving of the dividends. So let's just take a look at the first quarter. Revenue has risen 35% to 2.49 billion euros. The company talking about the strong results and the transformation that has successfully started. In terms of the profit line, 133 million euros in the first quarter versus minus 291 million uh, that we saw at the same time a year ago, that loss that was posted uh, as we entered the pandemic. So uh, we have seen the turnaround now in the first three months uh, in these numbers. The revenue is up uh, 35%. Uh, that comparable number at 2.49 billion is versus 1.85 billion same time a year ago. So you can see the improvement that's coming through there. The net result uh, of uh, 133 million, that is despite restructuring charges of 465 million, uh, the company's full year outlook has been raised after a good start into the year. So very positive way to kick off the first quarter when we're talking about an, an improvement now. Let's uh, just have a quick uh, look at the uh, numbers that we're seeing on the strong results in the first quarter. Revenue should slightly exceed the previous year and uh, a risk result in the range from minus 0.8 billion to minus 1.2 billion euros is anticipated. Based on current observations, a risk result of up to minus 1 billion is likely. So the company giving us a little bit of guidance. Let's get to Annette who's been digesting the numbers and can put some more uh, detail around what we're hearing after what has been a little bit of a rocky path for the company around profitability. Annette. Yeah, exactly. I think it's um, yeah, it's just, it is quite tough for Commerzbank these days because clearly, if you look at the share price, if you compare, it, for example, to Deutsche Bank, which really 
um, has taken off uh, slightly, at least from the lows which we've seen uh, in recent years, Commerzbank is still struggling. They're struggling with their profitability. They're struggling with an idea that they can convince investors to really boost profitability. So essentially, the new CEO um, has taken on his job with a new strategy, which is essentially based on cost cutting. So just yesterday, uh, the day before, they got uh, the approval by the unions to really go tough on cost cutting to shed 10,000 jobs of the of 40,000 jobs which they worldwide do have. Um, um, that is one big exercise. Just yesterday, we got the news that they are partnering up the equity brokerage with Auto BHF. Also, a move to go. Yeah, get rid of those costs and leverage the business um, in, in a move to boost, as I was saying, profitability, because essentially Commerzbank needs higher interest rates in order to be really successful to um, leverage their business model and uh, get it get, get it going with higher income. So the first quarter seems really to beat expectations across the board. Um, and that is not only because they have a lower risk result, they call risk results, their loan loss provision. The loan loss provisions are a tad lower than expected, but not an awful lot. They have a lot of um, restructuring expenses booked in the first quarter. But the revenue line, the revenue line is surprisingly strong, higher than analysts had expected. Um, for the full year, they are now expecting to have a uh, have loan loss provision in the range of 0.8 to 1.2 billion euro, which is not a big surprise. They have a huge loan book towards uh, German corporates. And um, we're still waiting that once all the support measures are fading out, that there might be more insolvencies coming um, also for Commerzbank. So essentially, as I was saying, to sum it up, the numbers look good, the, the outlook is raised, but still the key question is how to convince investors that the business strategy of Commerzbank will be viable also for the medium to long term. But that's back to you. I hear you. And the key question's got to be on the back of that. When banks are going to be able to make decent money out of lending and borrowing for their clients when you've got negative interest rates. Good morning, my old friend. How are Very you? Good morning. Uh, uh, Is his microphone, microphone working? Yeah, I think it's been uh, it's been fixed now. Because because uh, I thought you were doing your Marcel Marceau at the top well, of the did, show. Well, it did look like it, didn't it? It did look like I was... Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Because yeah. I put some yeah. hairspray on it, so right. they screwed okay. up. I just thought, you know... Just... Yeah, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> right, these markets. Okay, I, I love you lot out there. Two days of a bit of downward movement and you're all panicking. Well, not all of you, but you know what I mean. Certainly some of these who were trading the Nasdaq, yes, they weren't panicking. In fact, you doubled up. So, But look, but I just, I'm going to say something really easy here. This is a nice, easy sketch. You'd have heard me do it a few times over the last few months or so. So S&P, down 0.9%, down for the second day in a row. All those concerns, you know, I'm not going to mention, well, I will be. Right, it's all about inflation again, isn't it? Blah, 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 blah. Then just let me just remind you guys that S&P is 2.8% away from a record level, the highest level in the history of the S&P. It's 2.8% away from it. It's 89% away from its lows in the pandemic. You have rallied 89%. You're 89% higher than your lows. I mean, come on, guys. Giving back a little bit. That's how markets used to work before the central banks held your hand on every single wobble. The Dow, the Dow is 2.3% away from its record level. It's 88% above its lows. And as far as the Nasdaq is concerned, and I'll come a bit more to the Nasdaq and the Dow in a few moments' time. What an extraordinary session. We'll come to that. But the Nasdaq is 128% above its lows. 
No, still not convincing you? Still panicky? Okay, well, I beg your pardon. The Nasdaq's actually 102%. It's the Russell 2K is 120%. My point is, we've had massive rallies, and all of a sudden, we have a couple of down days, and suddenly the wheels are off in terms of your psyche for a lot of you. Look at the Dow versus the Nasdaq yesterday. This is a fantastic chart. Well done, team, for putting this together. So mirroring, 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 and then suddenly, whoa, hey, we're off to the races on the Nasdaq, uh, and the Dow carries on pretty much within range of where it was at its lows of the day. We haven't got the VIX as well. Let's do that as well. VIX month to date uh, is up, I think it's around about 30%. I've got it here somewhere. Yeah, 30.8% week to date as well. Now, when it was trading with a 17 handle, none of you listened to me. Uh, none of you said, oh, yeah. But, you know, the thing about it is when you get a 17 handle, let me just explain to you a little bit about volatility. You don't buy and hold, or you can buy and hold. You can buy and hold it against, say, a stock, and then you create yourself a synthetic call, yeah? Or you've got your put protection, so to speak, as well. But if you um, actually um, trade it with your gamma, you can actually make some money out of these intraday moves if you're getting some decent intraday moves. And I think we are, aren't we? Anyway, I haven't even got to my real chat yet. Uh, well, we can do that in, in just a bit. But I think what you're basically implying is this is not a time to take a very entrenched position one way or the other. Um, trade the opportunities around the volatility as you get them. Because the trouble is a lot of people are inclined just to take a very binary position at the moment. I'm reading a lot of research which is talking about the tipping point now in the rotation from value to growth. You don't have to believe it's one thing or the other. And I think that was the message coming through uh, on the indices there. We've had a couple of days where the Nasdaq has done quite poorly compared to the other markets. Yesterday, we had a day where it did better. The point is, you don't have to take a big conviction position at this point when there are so many choppy trends in the markets. And we're also seeing that around the currencies. Let, let's just have a look at the currencies for a moment here. Um, so the euro, a little bit weaker against the dollar. The story of late has been largely about dollar weakness, but that's not what is happening or unfolding on this board. The dollar is making some ground against the yen. Uh, the pound is slipping a little bit back away from the near 142 level it made uh, against the dollar as we find that people are, are a little bit more risk averse on what was quite a weak session across the equity markets. Uh, US dollar making some gains here against the Swiss franc. So pretty much as you would expect, in a moment where markets decide to go a little risk off. Let's have a look at the uh, treasuries. This is um, a quick snapshot for you on the US curve. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about the direction of travel for the 10-year note and how it went up through 170 and now back down through 160. Well, to be quite frank with you, we've had a lot of noise but actually, we haven't consistently moved in one direction or the other. And even as maybe the market is getting very fixated on this idea that um, there is the reflation opportunity, growth is coming back, and then we had a difficult jobs number, it goes back to that point about not being conviction-led at this point because there is enough to and fro around the yield curve trade at the moment for us not to have an incredibly clear direction here. So let's just have a quick look at the opening calls uh, as far as uh, how we're setting up for the European session. And nothing particularly surprising about this as Europe tries to find its feet and some guide 
from what we saw in the Asian and in the US session that Steve walked us through, we have an indication at the moment that we will start the session slightly on the back foot for those who would like to see this market long, Karen. Jeff, let's hear from one top investor. Stanley Druckenmiller has hit out at the Fed's monetary policy, telling CNBC it's totally inappropriate. The chairman and CEO of Duquesne Family Office argued that the Fed's stance is out of step with the current economic environment. He also warned that bubbles had formed across a range of assets. I have no doubt, none whatsoever, that we are in a raging mania in all assets. I also have no doubt um, that I don't have a clue when that's going to end. We're still playing the game. We've shifted a lot of our, our relative uh, bets into commodities, um, into interest rates, into the dollar. All those shifts occurred last, last, say, August through October when it became clear to us that the recovery was going. But I will be surprised if we're not out of the stock market by the end of the year. Druckenmiller expanded on his criticism of the Fed, saying inflation is the elephant in the room and urged the FOMC to hike rates. Speaking to CNBC later in the day, the St. Louis Fed President James Bullard defended the central bank strategy. I don't know how many pandemics uh, Stan has lived through, but the, you know these don't come along that often. Uh, this is the first major one we've had since 1918. Uh, I think the response was really good here, uh, both on the fiscal and the monetary side. The, the Fed joint, working jointly with the Treasury, I think, put in programs that averted a financial crisis in the March-April timeframe of 2020, not just for the U.S., but for the world. James Bullard there. I don't think there's any argument with what uh, has been produced in terms of response to this pandemic, fiscal and monetary together hand in hand. The problem is what comes next. And if you look at some of the estimates, the US economy is meant to be back on its feet uh, by about the second quarter, recovering a lot of that lost GDP. The missing link there remains the employment market. And as we've seen, very stubborn numbers coming through on the US non-farm payrolls report. That was disappointing. But at the same time, you've got uh, this hotness, this tightness in the labour market and other quarters. And and this is a problem. You've still got jobs, about eight odd million that have not been brought back to the economy, a huge number of jobs that still need to be found from somewhere, even if we reclaim GDP. But the Fed uh, is trying to tackle both aspects around jobs and growth. But uh, some quarters of the market, as you could just hear from one top investor, are concerned that inflation is going to be a, a much more uh, present danger near term because of all of the stimulus added. So I think the market is now showing this tension, not in the Treasury market, because I think the Fed may hold the line, but you are seeing in other quarters of the market, namely that sell down in technology and sell down in other stocks too. And you saw that extend to the Dow, where there might be concerns now about stretched valuations. And if you do start to see that uh, ramp up in inflation, then you get compressed company margins. Karen, in, in the spirit of scoreboxing, in a lovely way, I'm going to disagree with most of what you just said there, if I may. Um, first of all, I think there is a very big debate about whether the fiscal monetary should go hand in hand at this current stage as well. I think we only have to look uh, at the Republican recalcitrance to the extra trillions that Mr. Biden wants to spend to see that very, very clearly laid out, the difference between the, what they believe the fiscal response should be at this stage uh, and what the fiscal response is at this stage. So that, that might be the first thing. The other thing is I don't think we can extrapolate too much from the job, uh, the payrolls number as well. There is an awful lot of other data out there as well, which is saying, actually, we are as tight as can be. March job openings, for instance, in the JOLT survey was a record high, 8.1%. 
8.1 million, a record high. Now, that was up from the February figure, 8.1 as opposed to 7.5. And if you look at the NFIB survey as well, uh, you'll see that amidst that, the hiring component of the index uh, signaling very big numbers, which are still above the highest levels we saw on average in 2019. So as far as the NFIB is concerned, the small business indicator is they actually have a, a, a higher hiring component figure than we had before the pandemic. So I wouldn't extrapolate too much, I'm afraid, from one payroll figure. Just to come back to the to the markets and market levels at the moment, um, interesting listening to, to, to the comments there that we heard from Stanley Druckenmiller and the response from uh, our friend at the Fed. Um, the searches for the term stock market bubble on Google are now at a five-year high, this uh, fact courtesy of Mark Holbert. So do we need to worry about the fact that the markets, as you look at them on a valuation basis, the fundamentals do look quite stretched? Or do we need to worry about the fact that people are now beginning to be concerned about the level of speculative froth? And clearly, Mr. Druckenmiller thinks it's a problem at this point, and he's not the only one because other surveys suggest that professionals have been pulling money out of the market at this point, so they are concerned about the levels. I don't know if we are at a bubble point where we are close to a collapse, but what I would say to individual members of our audience who are watching this morning, consider your own circumstances. Are you prepared to see a market down over the course of a decade, two decades, three years, five years, that should frame how you think about being involved in this market at the moment. I think this is stunningly important. And, and sorry, to turn uh, Mr. Bullard's criticism of Mr. Druckenmeier back on, his, uh, on itself, if I may, you said something very important. You said, I don't know. Uh, and Mr. Druckenmiller is just pointing out he thinks the Fed policy is too accommodative. James Bullard is saying, well, how many of these pandemics have you been through then? Well, the thing is, James Bullard hasn't been through many of these pandemics either, I, any of these pandemics, unless he was alive for the Spanish flu, which I'm pretty sure he wasn't. So how is it then on that basis that those of us who say we don't know are, are being lambasted by central banks who are saying we do know? How many of those central bankers have been through a pandemic? The answer is none of them apart from, you know, obviously the, the smaller ones we've seen around the globe in the last 20 years. So, so for James Bullard and the rest of the central banks to be so constantly assured that it is transitory when the rest of us are saying, we don't know, I find that quite tough. Uh, we better move on. Um, we've got a lot, a lot of guests coming up over the next three hours. Maybe we'll get back into some of these issues. Um, let's focus on the Asian session then. Asian equities followed their US counterparts into the red amid inflation worries. Matt is with us from Singapore with more on the story. Morning, Matt. Hi there, Jeff. Morning to you. Red again is the picture for Asia. Uh, with the exception of the Hong Kong market, just back from the lunch break, and we are seeing some modest gains. Shenzhen uh, also moving slightly higher as well. The Shanghai Composite weaker. Uh, but a number of those big tech-heavy markets once again lower. Japan uh, was down by about 2%. South Korea now down by about 1.3%. But Taiwan is the main story we're watching today, notching up uh, earlier an 8% decline on the back of COVID worries there. Taiwan saying it may raise its COVID-19 alert level in the coming days amid rising case numbers there. 
Remember, Taiwan has been applauded for its successful handling of the pandemic, but six new clusters have developed there, and that's really been worrying the market, now currently down by about 3.6%. Some movers out of Japan as well. Toyota out with full-year profit numbers, showing the net profit gain by 10%. We are seeing Toyota up by about 2.4% now. Nissan down by about 10%, though. Those shares tumbling after it reported a record annual loss when the market had been expecting a return to profit. It's blaming the global chip shortage. That's what we're watching in Asia. Back to you now in London. Terrific. Thanks so much for that, Matt. Let's move on as petrol supplies begin to dwindle following the colonial pipeline cyber attack. The US government has urged citizens not to panic buy. We'll tell you more about that story when we come back. And if you want to know a little bit more about the volatile market session, listen to the CNBC Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back. At least 35 civilians have been killed in Gaza by Israeli military airstrikes in the worst violence the region has seen since 2014. Five people in Israel also lost their lives as Palestinian militants fired rockets into Tel Aviv. The UN's Middle East envoy is now urging for a ceasefire, warning the situation is, quote, escalating towards a full-scale war. The surge in violence comes amid swelling tensions in Israeli-occupied East Jerusalem and after Israeli police fired stun grenades into a mosque, injuring over 300 Palestinians. The U.S. Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, says the colonial pipeline should be fully running again within the coming days. Following Friday's ransomware attack, this as some areas of the East Coast are beginning to see some shortages in petrol supplies. Now, Eamon Javers filed this report. Lots of speculation here in Washington, but no real firm answers on some of the central questions about this cyber attack on Colonial Pipeline, including whether or not Colonial Pipeline is going to be paying the ransom that's been demanded by the hackers here. We had a briefing from officials at the White House today. We saw the head of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Protection Agency, the nation's top cyber response unit, uh, testifying up on Capitol Hill as well. He said that he still doesn't have the critical information that he needs in order to to respond to this attack and also to help other American infrastructure entities protect themselves. Here's what he said. Right now, we are waiting for additional technical information on exactly what happened at Colonial so that we can use that information to potentially protect other potential victims down the road. At the White House today, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm suggested that Colonial Pipeline is going to be able to make a decision on Wednesday about whether or not it can restart, although she cautioned that that restart process won't necessarily be instantaneous. Here's her explanation. I've had several conversations with uh, the CEO of Colonial and who has indicated that by close of business tomorrow, Colonial will be in a position to make the full restart decision. Uh, But even after that decision is made, it will take a few days to ramp up operations. 
It's that Wednesday deadline to make a decision to restart or not restart that gives an indication to cybersecurity experts that I talked to today that there's something happening behind the scenes that's giving Colonial Pipeline the confidence that it's going to be able to make that decision and execute it and keep the pipeline up and running if it does, uh, starting as soon as Wednesday. And the possibilities are two. One is that Colonial Pipeline is in the process already quietly of paying that ransom. And the second possibility here is that they've done something on the technological side that indicates to them that they can get this data back, they can operate their systems, and they're confident that they can keep the hackers out. But for one reason or the other, they seem to be confident, according to the U.S. government, that they can make that decision on Wednesday and then keep the operations going once they actually restart the pipeline. That's the key here, that something is happening behind the scenes. We just don't know exactly what it is, at least not yet. For CNBC Business News, I'm Eamon Javers in Washington. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.